Section 60 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We may now narrate the end of Nestorius. For some years he lived in peace in a monastery near Antioch, but his relations with its bishop appear to have cooled. In 435 he was banished to Petra in Arabia, but instead of going thither he seems to have been sent to one of the oases of Egypt. There a wandering horde of Libyans, the Blemies, made him prisoner. Soon after he was released and fled to Panopolis in Egypt. Thence he wrote a pathetic letter to the Prices of the Thebaid, begging for protection, lest to all time the evil report should be brought that it is better to be a captive of barbarians than a fugitive suppliant of the Roman emperor. But Nestorius had fallen into the very hotbed of fanatical monasticism. The Prices caused him to be removed by barbarian soldiers to Elephantine on the borders of the province. There is some evidence that the blow which put an end to his sufferings was dealt by the hand of Senuti himself. This was, however, some years later. Nestorius was not a great leader of men, nor a very striking figurehead for a great cause. His whole story illustrates the perversity and blind cruelty of his opponents, and it is only in comparison with them that he sometimes appears in an almost dignified character. This character is greatly emphasized by the lately discovered writings in which Nestorius was employed shortly before his death. He seems to have approved the final arrangement of Chalcedon and even to have acquiesced, with a magnanimity hardly to be expected, in the compromise by which his own name was left under the cloud while the principles for which he had striven were in great measure confirmed. Part 3 the Monophysite or Eutychian controversy may be regarded as a continuation of the preceding one, yet as some of the leading parties were different, as well as their objects and methods, it may be better to take it apart. The main difference as to character and issue of this conflict, compared with the last, lies in the character of the champions of Rome and of Alexandria, respectively. Now there was a pope of commanding character and ability. Leo I stands out in history as a great ruler of the church, who crushed a premature movement towards Gallicanism, as a moral power in Rome itself in times of demoralizing panic, and as the shepherd of his people who, in ways known and unknown, stopped the Romeward march of Attila the Hun. Here we have to deal with him as a firm and successful asserter of the claims of St. Peter's chair over all others, and as a great diplomatic theologian who could mark out a permanent via media between opposite dogmatic tendencies. Dioscurus, the champion of Alexandria, had succeeded Cyril in A.D. 444. The fact that he was subsequently condemned as a heresiarch, whereas Cyril was canonized as a saint, has necessarily led to differences of opinion as to the relations between the two. 
he may be regarded with respect to his dogmatic position either as a deserter of Cyril's position between the heresies of monophysitism and diophysitism, or else as the real successor of Cyril in pressing the Alexandrian Christology to its natural conclusions. Personally, he seems to have dissociated himself from Cyril by making foes of Cyril's family, although, according to one account, he was himself of Cyril's kin. The charges made against his morals, both in public and in private life, may have been well-founded, but in three respects, at least, he was a real follower of Cyril, in his zeal for the prerogatives of the See of St. Mark, in the remarkable pertinacity and unscrupulousness with which he pursued his ends, and in his reliance on the monastic element among his followers, particularly on the part of it that was most violent and fanatic. Of Flavian, Bishop of Constantinople, there is less to be said. He enjoyed a reputation for piety, and seems to have acted with some independence in his relations with the emperor, but he does not show enough dignity and moderation in the early stages of the dispute to obtain the sympathy which his cruel treatment at the end might seem to claim. The premonitory symptoms of the controversy are to be seen in the complaints made by Dioscurus against Theodoret of Cyrus, who, as we have seen, had come into the general agreement without renouncing his hostility to the Egyptians and all their ways. On the promotion of Dioscurus, he had written a congratulatory and conciliatory letter, since Theodoret, almost alone in his generation, seems to have had a sense of humor, we may suspect a grain of sarcasm in singling out for commendation a virtue, that of humility, which the dearest friend of Dioscurus could hardly claim for him. Dioscurus soon charged Theodoret with having gone beyond justice in helping to restore an ex-Nestorian bishop of Tyre, of having himself preached a Nestorian sermon in Antioch, and of having, by appending his signature to a document issued by the late Patriarch of Constantinople, acknowledged too widespread a jurisdiction in that see. Dioscurus secured an imperial prohibition served on Theodoret against departing from his diocese. Considering the events which followed, he could hardly have conferred on him a greater benefit. The central controversy which broke out in 448 may have likewise originated from Dioscurus. Another source assigned is a court intrigue. The eunuch Chrysophius is said to have found the patriarch Flavian an obstacle in his way. Flavian had incurred the ill will of Theodosius by breaking a custom of sending complimentary gifts and also by refusing or at least avoiding the task of forcing Pocheria to retire into religious seclusion. The figurehead in the controversy is a poor one. Eutyches, the Archimandrite, or abbot of some monastery, in or near Constantinople, was an aged man who, according to his own statements, never left his monastery. But he had been a strong opponent of Nestorius, and now he was accused of disseminating errors of the opposite kind, of trying to propagate the doctrine of the one nature. 
His accuser, Bishop Eusebius of Dorolaeum, induced Flavian, at first reluctant, to call him to account. This was done at the half-yearly local council of the bishops who chanced to be at Constantinople. The accusations were made, and Eutyches was with difficulty brought from his seclusion to make his defense. He did not shine as a theologian, and wished to fall back on the decisions of Nicaea and of Ephesus. On being hard-pressed, he stated his belief in the words that he confessed Christ as being of two natures before the union in the incarnation, of one nature afterwards being God incarnate. On this point he refused to go back, and he was accordingly condemned and degraded. He afterwards tried in vain to prove that the reports of the Synod had been falsified. He appealed to the emperor, to Pope Leo, and to the monks of Constantinople. His friends, especially Chrysaphius, stirred up Dioscurus on his behalf. Suggestions were made of a larger council to revise the decision recently made at Constantinople, and the emperor decided that such a council should be held and that Dioscurus should preside. But if it was the opportunity of Alexandria, it was likewise the opportunity of Rome. Leo had received the communication of Eutyches with courtesy, and was at first somewhat irritated at Flavian's delay in keeping him informed and asking his counsel. But as soon as he had made inquiries into the whole affair, he became convinced that Flavian was right and Eutyches wrong. He at once urged his views in letters to Flavian, Theodosius, Pocheria, and others. There were three principles which determined his action. First, that it was not a case for a general council at all. The emperor, however, had decided otherwise. Secondly, that if there were a council, it ought to be called in the West. Here again, he failed to secure his point. Thirdly, that it was for him, as successor to St. Peter, to draw up for the church an authoritative statement or tome as to the points in controversy. Here he succeeded, though only in part. When the council was finally decided upon, he sent three delegates, a bishop, a priest, and a deacon, to represent him and to communicate his tome to the fathers present. The council was summoned to meet at Ephesus on 1 August 449. Dioscurus, as president, was to have as assessors Juvenal of Jerusalem and Thalassius of Caesarea. Both in composition and in procedure, to say nothing of state interference, it was exceedingly irregular. Many conspicuous bishops, such as Theodoret, were absent, an Archimandrite, Barsumus, was allowed to come, accompanied by a host of wild Syrian monks. The authority of the Roman see was so far neglected that Leo's tome was not even allowed to be read, and by an unblushing terrorism the signatures of over 115 bishops were obtained. Flavian, who had condemned Eutyches, and Eusebius, who had accused him, were deposed. Eutyches himself was reinstated and declared orthodox. 
Several bishops who had been more or less friendly with Nestorius, or who had some grudge against the Alexandrian See, were condemned and deprived on the strength of sayings attributed to them in public or private, and of many improbable moral offenses. Among the deprived were Theodoret of Cyrus and Abbas of Edessa. The papal legates were not present during the whole time of the council. Indeed, with regard to two of them, the question of their presence at all is doubtful. A single protest, contradictor, was made by the Roman deacon Hilary, who escaped for his life and brought tidings of what had been done to Rome. Many suffered severe treatment. Flavian succumbed and died very soon after. The nominee of Dioscurus, Anatolius, was appointed to succeed him. The violence of Dioscurus and his party may have been somewhat exaggerated by those who afterwards brought him to account, yet there can be little doubt that the name given to the whole proceeding by Leo, the robber council, which has clung to it all through the course of history, was one that it richly deserved. It is difficult to understand how Dioscurus could have so far overshot the mark. Either he must have been an utterly vain and foolhardy man who could not appreciate the strength of his antagonists, or he must have relied on the forces at his command, especially the monks and the emperor. The Egyptian and Syrian monks were certainly to be relied on, and Theodosius upheld him and the decisions of his council to the very end, even after a court revolution in which Chrysophius had been degraded. Eudokia had some years previously been obliged to leave the city. Leo acted with decision and promptitude. He called a synod at Rome and endeavored to secure a revision of the acts of the irregular council by one that should be full and legal. He refused to recognize Anatolius till he should have given satisfaction as to orthodoxy. He wrote to Pocheria asking again for her influence. He also used influence with the Western court and induced the emperor Valentinian, his mother Placidia, and his wife Eudoxia, the cousin, the aunt, and the daughter respectively of Theodosius, to write to him and urge a new council. Before the death of Flavian was known, his restoration was also demanded. The council should be held in Italy. At first there was no result. But the whole aspect of affairs was changed when, in July 450, Theodosius died from the effects of a fall from his horse. Pocheria, with the orthodox husband Marcion, whom ambition or stress or circumstances led her to choose, ascended the imperial throne. She had, as we have seen, disliked Nestorius, but she had no sympathy with the extreme party on the other side. She had always greatly interested herself in theological matters and was quite ready to avail herself of the opportunity now offered to give power and unity to the church. The change in governors necessitated with Leo a modification not of strategy but of tactics. If no new council was necessary, the calling of one was not, from the Roman point of view, desirable. 
The memory of Flavian must be rehabilitated, but Pocheria was quite ready to order the removal of the martyred bishop's bones. Dioscurus must be called to order, and his victims reinstated, and the rule of faith must be laid down. But for these objects, again, a council seemed superfluous, since according to Leo's view of papal authority, which the sufferers, especially Theodoret, were willing to acknowledge, he was competent to revise their cases on appeal, and as to the faith, Leo's tome had been prepared with the express view of making a settlement. Accordingly, he wrote to Marcion against the project of a council. As was natural, Marcion and Pocheria took a somewhat different view. Some circumstances, it is true, would make them ready to receive Leo's suggestions. Piety apart, they would naturally desire peace and unity, and also freedom from Alexandrian interference. Rumor said that Dioscurus was plotting against them. This may be false, though the friendly relations between the Monophysites and the exiled widow Empress Eudokia might render such a suggestion not improbable. But on the other hand, the Emperor and Empress were not likely to avoid Scylla in order to fall into Charubdas to liberate their ecclesiastical policy from Alexandrian dictation merely to bow beneath the yoke of Rome. With regard to the appointment of Anatolius, Leo had, by the appointment of a patriarch of Constantinople, attacked the independence of the emperor as well as the dignity of the patriarch himself. A council must be called, Leo or his delegates might preside, and his tome might serve as basis for confession of faith. But the council must be held in the east, not, as Leo now vainly requested, in the west, and measures must be taken in it to secure the prestige of the Byzantine See against that of either St. Mark or St. Peter. This policy, however, was not all to be declared at once. The council was summoned to assemble at Nicaea, the orthodox associations of that place being of good omen. It was to be larger and more representative than any hitherto held, comprising as many as 636 bishops, twice as many as those at Nicaea, though the emperor and empress took strong measures to exclude a concourse of unauthorized persons who might come to make a disturbance. Seeing, however, that military and civil exigencies prevented Marcion from attending meetings at a distance from his capital, he adjourned the council to Chalcedon. The wisdom of this step soon became evident. Chalcedon was sufficiently near to Constantinople to allow a committee of imperial ministers, with some distinguished members of the Byzantine Senate, to undertake the general control of affairs, and the emperor and empress were able, at least once, to attend in state as well as to watch proceedings throughout. When we consider the composition of the Council of Chalcedon and the state of parties at the time, we are surprised less at its failure to secure ecclesiastical unity than at its success in accomplishing any business at all. It can hardly be said that anyone wished for unity except on conditions that some others would pronounce intolerable. 
On the one hand were the ex-Nestorian bishops Theodoret of Cyrus and Debas of Edessa, who, though they had repudiated Nestorius himself, were strongly attached to the school from which he had sprung, and had suffered on many occasions, but worst at the robber council, from the injustice and violence of the Eutychian party. These, being dispossessed, could not, of course, take part in the proceedings till they had been reinstated, but they had been summoned to the spot, and their very presence was very likely to inflame the passions of their opponents. At the opposite extreme was Dioscurus, supported but feebly by the bishops who had assisted him at Ephesus, or rather by such as had not already submitted to Rome, yet backed up vigorously by a host of Syrian and Egyptian monks who had managed to secure admittance in the character of petitioners. Between these parties stood the legates and the party of Leo, determined on urging the Roman solution of the problem and no other. In the church of St. Euphemia, where the council sat, the central position was held by the imperial commissioners. Immediately on their left were the Roman delegates who were regarded as the ecclesiastical presidents, the bishops Paschasinus and Lucentius, and the priest Boniface, and near them the bishops of Antioch, Caesarea, and Ephesus, then several from Pontus, Thrace, and some eastern provinces. To the right of the commissioners were the bishops of Alexandria and Jerusalem, with those from Egypt, Illyria, and Palestine. These seem to have been the most conspicuous members of the council, and were ranged like government and opposition parties in Parliament. A certain number walked over from the Egyptian to the Roman side in the course of the first session, and before the whole business was over, the right must have been very much weakened. There were no restraints set to the expression of agitated feelings, and cries of, Turn him out! Kill him! as an objectionable person came in sight, were mixed with groans of real or feigned penitence for past errors and imprecations against those who would either divide or confuse the divine nature. The first and third sessions were devoted to the case of Dioscurus, the second, fourth, and fifth to the question of belief, the others chiefly to minor or personal matters. At the very first, the papal legates refused to let Dioscurus take his seat, stating that Leo had forbidden it. The first charge against him was that he had held a council without the consent of the Roman see. It is difficult to see how this could have been maintained, since Leo had certainly sent his representatives to the Second Council of Ephesus, but other charges were soon brought forward by Eusebius of Dorylium as to his behavior with regard to Flavian and Eutyches. The acts of the robber council, as well as those of the synod at Constantinople, at which Flavian had condemned Eutyches, were read, a lengthy process which lasted till after night had fallen and candles had been brought in. Theodoret, amid cheers from one side and groans from the other, was brought in to witness against his enemy, now at bay. The bishops who had signed the decrees at Ephesus told ugly stories of terrorism and begged for forgiveness. 
Finally, the secular judges declared Dioscurus deposed, but a further examination was made in the third session, from which, since the subjects to be discussed were of technical theology, the imperial commissioners were absent. This fact gave Dioscurus an excuse for declining to obey the summons sent him. Charges against his private life were made at some length. After his third refusal to appear, the sentence of deprivation was passed. A similar decree was passed against Thalassius, Juvenal, and others who had assisted him, but on due submission these were not only pardoned, but allowed to take part in the business of the council. A similar indulgence was extended to all who, by force or guile, or possibly of their own will, had joined in the action which they were now ready to condemn. Yet Dioscurus was not wholly without a following. Perhaps the demand made in the fourth session by certain Egyptian bishops that according to usage they might not be forced to consent to anything important without the consent of the Alexandrian see may not have shown much loyalty to the late occupant of that see. But there can be no doubt that the petition presented by a body of monks, chiefly Eutychian, showed serious disaffection. The request was for a truly ecumenical council, such as this one could hardly be without the presence of an Alexandrian patriarch. It is needless to say that the petitioners were angrily repelled. Yet they alone, of all who had been concerned in the robber council, had at least retained something of thieves' honor. The discussions on the question of the faith were long and stormy. The practical problem might seem to be comparatively simple if it consisted in marking out safe ground between diophysitism and monophysitism. Neither of these forms of belief had advocates in the council, for we have seen that Nestorius was not an uncompromising diophysite and Eutyches was not an entire monophysite. Even had it been otherwise, Nestorianism had been trampled in the dust, and Eutychianism might seem to have received its death blow. Those who said that further definitions were unnecessary, that the doctrines of Cyril and of Leo were in full accord, had some show of reason on their side. But the need for further definition was urged, and nearly led to a collapse of the whole council. A general agreement was obtained without great difficulty. The creeds of Nicaea and of Constantinople, the letters of Cyril to Nestorius and to John of Antioch, and finally the Tome of Leo, were read and approved. It was this last document that the Roman delegates regarded as sufficient to put a stop to all further controversy. It has always remained a classical monument in the history of Christology, and has been far more widely read and studied than the declaration finally made at Chalcedon. 
Perhaps it seemed insufficient to some because the word theotokos was not contained in it, though the idea implied in that word is set forth in unmistakable terms. And again, though very many present had subscribed to the tome, it was not unnatural that in many quarters there should be a reluctance to accept as possessing peculiar authority a document emanating from a Western source. Anatolius and certain other bishops accordingly drew up a formula which was presented to the council, but this only roused fierce opposition from the Roman legates, and even to a threat that they would withdraw altogether and cause a new council to be assembled in Italy. The obnoxious creed has not come down to us, but we gather that it contained the expression, Christ is of two natures, ek duo fuseon, instead of the phrase in two natures, en duo fusesen. Those who would regard the theological difference as rooted in philosophical distinction may suggest a rational apprehension in the minds of Leo and his supporters that whatever might be the principle of union or separation in divine and human nature, it could not, as Eutyches supposed, be dependent on a merely temporal relation. It would, of course, have been fatal to the policy of the emperor and empress if Rome had seceded at this juncture. As a compromise, Anatolius and a chosen representative committee of bishops were bidden to retire into the oratory of St. Euphemia and prepare a new creed. The document, when produced, proved to be based on that of Leo but it contained on the one side the word theotokos, and on the other there can hardly be any doubt, in spite of what seemed to be clerical errors, the phrase en duo fusesen. After the question of the faith had been settled, the emperor came himself to the council and congratulated the bishops on the success of their labors in the cause of unity and truth. Sundry matters of local yet not unimportant interest were transacted in the last session. Thus Abbas and Theodoret were reinstated in their sees. In the case of Theodoret, a natural reluctance to anathematize the memory of his quondam friend Nestorius was overcome by threats. The only conceivable excuse is that the anathema may have been drifting into a mere façon de parler, and that, as shown above, Nestorius had himself generously expressed a wish that his own reputation might not be preferred to the cause of truth. Finally, a list of canons, thirty in number, were drawn up, mostly on points of less burning interest, and the imperial authorities undertook to add the force of the secular arm to the decrees of the council. But before the members dispersed, a stormy discussion arose which might seem to give the lie to the emperor's pious hopes, especially as it was but the beginning of a fresh breach. This was the dispute as to Canon 28. It is certain from the remonstrance made by the Roman delegates that neither they nor the imperial commissioners had been present when the one in question was put to the vote. Also, that a comparatively small number of bishops had subscribed to it. The canon is so important that it had better be given in full. 
Footnote 1. Nearly Dr. Parseval's translation apud the seven ecumenical councils. End of footnote. Following in all things the decisions of the Holy Fathers and acknowledging the canon, which has just been read, of the one hundred and fifty bishops beloved of God who assembled in the imperial city of Constantinople, which is New Rome, in the time of the Emperor Theodosius of happy memory. We also do enact and decree the same things concerning the privileges of the Most Holy Church of Constantinople, which is New Rome. For the Fathers rightly granted privileges to the throne of Old Rome because it was the imperial city and the one hundred and fifty most religious bishops, actuated by the same consideration, gave equal privileges, Isa Presbea, to the most holy throne of New Rome, justly judging that the city which is honored with the sovereignty and the senate, and enjoys equal privileges with the old imperial Rome, should in ecclesiastical matters also be magnified as she is, and rank next after her, so that in the Pontic, the Asian, and the Thracian diocese, the Metropolitans only, and such bishops also of the diocese aforesaid, as are among the barbarians, should be ordained by the aforesaid most holy throne of the most holy church of Constantinople. Every metropolitan of the aforesaid diocese, together with the bishops of his province, ordaining his own provincial bishops, as has been declared by the divine canons. But that, as has been above said, the metropolitans of the aforesaid diocese should be ordained by the archbishop of Constantinople after the proper elections have been held according to custom and have been reported to him. It is hardly necessary to say that all the earlier or theoretical parts of this document clashed entirely with Leo's views as to the supremacy of Rome and the relations of church and state, while the latter or practical part seemed to give dangerously wide powers to the see of New Rome. When the Roman delegates objected, they were allowed a hearing, but reminded that it was their own fault that they had not been present when the canon was passed. They lodged a formal protest, supported by a phrase which had been interpolated into the Nicene canons. The result was nugatory. The canon was maintained. Leo supported the action of his delegates, or rather, they had rightly gauged his mind. A long and stormy correspondence which he kept up with Marcion, Pocheria, and Anatolius led to no final settlement. Leo acknowledged the validity of what had been done at Chalcedon with regard to the faith, but held out tenaciously against the claims of the Byzantine See. There seems a touch of unconscious irony in his championship of the ancient rites of Alexandria and of Antioch, as well as in his inculcations on Anatolius to practice the virtue of humility. He only became reconciled to Anatolius three years later after receiving from him a very apologetic letter laying the blame on the Byzantine clergy and stating that the whole case had been reserved for Leo's decision. 
but Anatolius could not bind the Eastern churches. Canon 28 continued to be accepted by the East, though unrecognized by the West. We may ask which cause or which party profited by the Council of Chalcedon. The papacy had put forth great claims, and in part had realized them, yet it seemed at the last to have been overreached by the East. A certain uniformity of belief had been imposed on a great part of the Christian world, but this belief was not supposed to add anything to the authoritative declarations of former councils, and so far as it wore any semblance of novelty, it served only to embitter party strife in the regions that most required pacification. The most active and ambitious disturber of the peace had been got rid of, but only with the result that his see had become the prey of hostile factions. There was some gain to the Far East in the restoration of learned and comparatively moderate men like Theodoret and Abbas, but they had still to encounter active opposition. Perhaps the emperor was the chief gainer, but he had overstrained his authority. The best that can be said for the council is that things might have been worse if no council had met. End of section 60